only now reaching Nitzavim Vayelech, can we begin to get a sense of the vast world-changing project at the heart of the divine human encounter that took place in the lifetime of Moses and the birth of Israel as a nation. To understand it, we have to remember the famous remark of Sherlock Holmes. He said to Dr. Watson, I draw your attention to the curious incident of the dog at night. But the dog did nothing at night, said Watson. That, said Holmes, is the curious incident. Sometimes to know what a book is about, you need to focus on what it doesn't say, not just on what it does. What's missing from the Torah, almost inexplicably so, given the background against which it is set, is a fixation with death. The ancient Egyptians were obsessed with it. Their monumental buildings were in an attempt to defy death. The pyramids were giant mausoleums. More precisely, they were portals through which the soul of a deceased pharaoh could ascend to heaven and join the immortals. The most famous Egyptian text that's come down to us is the Book of the Dead. Only the afterlife is real. Life is a preparation for death. Now, there's nothing of this in the Torah, at least not explicitly. Yes, Jews believed in Olam Haba, the world to come, life after death. They believed in Tchiat HaMetim, the resurrection of the dead. There are six references to it in the second paragraph of the Amidah alone. But not only are these ideas almost completely absent from Tanakh, they're absent at the very points where we would most expect them. Look at the book of Kohelet, for instance. It's an extended lament at human mortality. Havel Havalim Hakol Havel, everything is worthless because life is a mere fleeting breath. Why didn't the author of Kohelet not mention the world to come and life after death? The book of Job is a sustained protest against the apparent injustice of the world. Why did no one answer Job, you and other innocent people who suffer will be rewarded in the afterlife. We believe in the afterlife, so why isn't it mentioned? Why is it merely hinted at in the Torah? That is the curious incident. The simple answer is that obsession with death ultimately devalues life. Why fight against the evils and injustices of the world if this life is only a preparation for the world to come? Ernest Becker, in his classic book, The Denial of Death, argues that our fear of our own mortality has been one of the driving forces of civilization. It's what led the ancient world to enslave the masses, turning them into giant labor forces, to build monumental buildings that would stand as long as time itself. It led to the ancient cult of the hero, the man who becomes immortal by doing daring deeds on the field of battle. We fear death. We have a love-hate relationship with it. Freud called this Thanatos, the death instinct, and said it was one of the two driving forces of life, the other one being Eros. Judaism is a sustained protest against this worldview. That's why, for instance, no one knows where Moses is buried, so that his tomb would never become a place of pilgrimage and worship. That's why in place of a pyramid or a temple like the ones Ramses the second built at Abu Simbel, all the Israelites had for almost five centuries until the days of Solomon was the Mishkan, a portable sanctuary, more like a tent than a temple. That's why in Judaism death defiles, and why the rite of the para aduma, the red heifer, was necessary to purify people from contact with death. 
That's why the holier you are, if you're a Kohen, and all the more so if you're a Kohen Godel, a high priest, the less can you be in contact or under the same roof as a dead person. Why? Because God is not found in death but in life. Only against this Egyptian background can we fully sense the drama behind words that have become so familiar to us that we're no longer surprised by them. The great words in which Moses framed the choice for all of us for all time. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse of Vacharta Vachayim. Therefore, choose life that you and your children may live. Life is good, death is bad, life is a blessing, death is a curse. Now, for us, those are truisms. Why even mention them? Because there weren't common ideas in the ancient world at all. They were revolutionary, and they still are. How then do you defeat death? Yes, there's an afterlife, and yes, there's triatametim, resurrection. But Moses doesn't focus on these obvious ideas. He tells us something different altogether. He says you achieve immortality by being part of a covenant, a covenant with eternity itself, that is to say, a covenant with God. You see, when you live your life within a covenant, something extraordinary happens. Your parents and grandparents live on in you. You live on in your children and grandchildren. They're part of your life. You are part of theirs. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu meant when he said near the beginning of this week's parasha, it's not with you alone that I am making this covenant an oath, but with whoever stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as those who are not with us here today. In Moses' day, that last phrase meant the children not yet born. It didn't need to include your parents no longer alive because their parents had themselves made a covenant with God 40 years before at Mount Sinai. But what Moses meant in a larger sense is that when we renew the covenant, when we dedicate our lives to the faith and way of life of our ancestors, they become immortal in us as we become immortal in our children. And it's precisely because Judaism focuses on this world, not the next, that it is the most child-centered of all the great religions. They are our immortality. That's what Rachel meant when she said to Jacob, give me children or else I am one, like one dead. It's what Abraham meant when he said, Lord God, what will you give me if I remain childless? It's true, we're not all destined to have children. The rabbis say that the good we do constitutes our toldot, our posterity. But by honoring the memory of our parents and of those who came before us and bringing up children who continue the Jewish story, we achieve the one form of immortality that lies this side of the grave, in this world, that God pronounced good. And this, I think, helps to explain the last of all the commands in the Torah, set out in Parshish Vayelech, the one that Moses gave at the very end of his life. The last command was, Now write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and make them sing it, so that it may be a witness for me against them. This, according to tradition, is the command to write at least part of a Sefer Torah. As Maimonides puts it, even if your ancestors have left you a Sefer Torah, nonetheless, you are commanded to write one for yourself. What Moses is saying in this, his last charge to the people he'd led for 40 years was, it's not enough to say our ancestors received the Torah from Moses or from God. You have to take the Torah and make it new in every generation. You must make the Torah, 
not just your parents or grandparents' faith, but your own. If you write it, it will write you. The eternal word of the eternal God is your share in eternity. We now sense the full force of the drama of these last days of Moses' life. Moses knew he was about to die, knew that he wouldn't cross the Jordan and enter the land. He'd spent his entire life leading the people toward. Moses, confronting his own mortality, asks us in every generation to confront ours. Our faith, Moses is telling us, isn't like that of the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, or virtually every other civilization known to history. We don't find God in a realm beyond life, in heaven, after death, mystic disengagement from the world, or philosophical contemplation. We find God in life. We find God in the key words of Devarim as a whole, in love and in joy. Ava v'simcha. To find God, he says in this week's parasha, you don't have to climb to heaven or cross the sea. God is here. God is now. God is life. And that life, though it will end one day, in truth doesn't end. Because if you keep the covenant, then your ancestors will live in you and you will live on in your children or your disciples or the recipients of your kindness. Every seven years, the covenant will become new again. Every generation will write its own Sefer Torah. The gate to eternity isn't death. It's life lived in a covenant, endlessly renewed, in words engraved on our hearts and the hearts of our children. And so Moses, the greatest leader we ever had, became immortal, not by living forever, not by building a tomb and temple to his glory. We don't even know where he's buried. The only physical structure he'd left us was portable because life itself is a journey. He didn't even become immortal the way Aaron did by seeing his children become his successors. He became immortal by making us his disciples. And that is what the rabbis said in one of their first recorded utterances. Emidu talmidim harbe, raise up many disciples. To be a leader, you don't need a crown or robes of office. All you need to do is write your chapter in the story, do the deeds that heal some of the pain of this world, and act so that others become a little better for having known you. Live so that through you our ancient covenant with God is renewed in the only way that matters, in life. Moses' last testament to us, at the very end of his days, when his mind might so easily have turned to death, was, choose life. <laughs>